Let's listen back through some 40 years of the United States celebrating itself. We didn't seek this leadership. It was thrust upon us. We must not shy from the mantle of leadership. America must continue to be the world's greatest force for peace and freedom and prosperity. A global leader. And into the hands of America, God has placed the destinies of afflicted humanity. The world, the world needs America's strength and leadership. That's what we mean when we say America's exceptional. But America remains the indispensable nation. But America leads not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. Post-Second World War, post-Cold War, this has been the bipartisan credo of presidents and diplomats. The U.S. leads. It embraces its global role. But when Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, all that changed. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Now, there are subtleties within that soundbite. For example, President Trump's call that Americanism means ending forever wars. Now, though he didn't achieve that goal, it found support among citizens across the political spectrum. Trump, of course, also practiced a kind of diplomacy that ranged from transactional personal relationships to a slash-and-burn approach to international agreements. Well, now President-elect Joe Biden says the U.S. is back. Ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. Once again, sit at the head of the table. From NPR and WBUR, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point and the Head of the Table. Really? Well, let's interrogate that assertion. Peter Beinart, let's start with you. Do you thrill to Biden's call that the U.S. should claim its place at the head of the global table? No, I I think it's really there's a real problem with this kind of rhetoric. First of all, it overestimates the amount of power that the United States actually has. This notion of the United States as the natural global leader really dates from a period at the end of the World War II when the United States represented 50 percent of the world's gross domestic product. Even at the end of the Cold War, we represented about 25 percent. We're now represent about 15 percent. By some measures, China is already larger. So first of all, I think it's just out of step with the actual distribution of global power today. But secondly, it is assumes a kind of um, assumed virtue that the United States can be trusted to make the rules for other countries because we have their best interests at heart in, in a way that other nations don't. And given that the U.S. has been a kind of a wrecking ball for international rules and institutions in recent years, and to some significant degree even before Donald Trump, if you look at our invasion of Iraq, for instance, in violation of international law, our refusal, not just refusal to join the International Criminal Court, but essentially our effort to sanction the International Criminal Court, that I think that the U.S. would do well to show a bit more humility and think of ourselves as a partner, a country that shows solidarity with people in other parts of the world and seeks to solve global problems, but not as the inherited global leader at the head of the Mm. table. Well, this is Peter Beinart. He's contributing opinion writer for The New York Times and editor-at-large for the magazine Jewish Currents, professor of journalism at the City University of New York as well. And he recently published a column in The Times titled, Biden Wants America to Lead the World, It Shouldn't. That's what we're going to be exploring today because uh, in recent days, uh, in the past couple of weeks, the president-elect has announced his foreign policy and national security team. And, you know, we're going to take a look at whether or not 
uh, or what that what that foreign policy approach might be coming out of that team. So, Peter, hang on here for just a second, because I also want to introduce Kimberly Atkins. She's senior opinion writer for The Boston Globe, joining us from Washington. Kimberly, it's great to have you back. Hi, Magna. Nice to talk to you. Okay, so this is our this is our thesis that we're interrogating today. What's the the buzz amongst uh, you know the the transition team or in Washington about whether the United States should just saunter back up to the head of the table uh, and be reclaim its place as a as a global leader? Well, it will definitely be a big shift from the Trump era, the America first era, uh, which not only saw the United States really pull away globally uh, from the role that it occupied previously, but really uh, it was an era of a lot of partisan rancor here in Washington. And for Biden to have any chance at trying to push uh, his his foreign policy and, and reimagine the role of America in the world, he's going to need uh, the Republicans and the Democrats on Capitol Hill to help him. And after an election where uh, the, the division, where the divisions between the two are more split than ever, the Senate could be almost completely split in half, if not very close, uh, and the House uh, more evenly divided than it was before, that's going to be tough. And it's going to be tough to lead both by example. I mean, we're coming off of an election where the president is still uh, claiming that there was fraud and really casting dispersions on the democratic process. That doesn't look, that's not a great look for the rest of the world, mm-hmm. uh, but also in substance in, in terms of the foreign policies that President-elect Biden uh, will seek to um, implement. So it's going to be a tough job. Okay. So so we're going to come back to um, the specifics about how uh, how this might unfold in Washington vis-a-vis the next White House and the Congress. So keep that thought in mind, Kimberly. But Peter, let me just turn back to you here for a second, because when I hear you describe, first of all, the changes that have happened in in the past uh, uh, four years, um, and also you pointed to things like the um, the Iraq War, I do wonder, though, is there a sense right now amongst um, the foreign policy establishment internationally, or let's just put it this way, international leaders, that Maybe they, they, in a sense, welcome at least the rhetoric coming out of the of President-elect Biden because of um, the, the sense that it, it would at least hint that the U.S. wants to re-engage with the international community. Well, different countries are differently situated. In general, I would say countries do want the United States to re-engage. I mean, the United States is the only country that has left the climate the Paris Climate Change Agreement, even though we are one of the greatest contributors to climate change. In the middle of the pandemic, we are the only country that left the World Health Organization at a time when the world desperately needed to come together to to fight against global public health. We have not joined the COVAX vaccine effort that was designed to try to get vaccines to uh, poorer parts of the world. Uh, We've basically left, we've, we've, we basically kind of left the World Trade Organization completely hamstrung because we vetoed all judges to its main panel. So I think countries around the world would like the United States to start contributing to global efforts um, and, and participate in international institutions and try to abide by international law. But that's very different than saying that the United States should sit at the head of the table and that we should make the rules for other countries. Okay. I uh, see here, Peter, that uh... You sent out a, a, an email or a newsletter reflecting on the, your own column here, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and you said that you might have titled it "Peter Beinart attacks Biden and his advisors for believing things that Beinart used to believe himself." 
Yes, I, I, you know, in that newsletter, so I do, I write a weekly uh, newsletter at Substack in addition to, uh, you know, the columns that I write for the New York Times and the writing I do for Jewish Currents. And um, uh, I reflected in that column about my own evolution over 20 years. Um, uh, I'm a kind of politically came of age in the 1990s uh, at a time when um, I, you know, America intervened militarily in what appeared to be quite successful ways in the Gulf War in 91. Bosnia in 95 and Kosovo in 1999. And I think, at, you know, at an earlier period of my life, that led me to um, vastly exaggerate the, 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 what American military power in particular could achieve and, and not to be nearly conscious enough of the dangers um, of the consequences of American intervention and the consequences of America not violent, not abiding by international law as we did not in Iraq and in some ways did not in Kosovo as well. So I actually ended up writing not one but two books during that period, really trying to kind of grapple with how I had been so wrong and, and trying to rethink my vision of America's role in the world. Of course, things one's views always change in response to events, but that newsletter was an attempt to try to understand how I, over a course of 20 years, went from one place to another. Yeah. So are you saying simply, Peter, that um, the the model of American leadership, quote-unquote leadership, that say, for example, President-elect Biden might have in his head, the model that had been embraced for roughly 40, 50 years even, it simply does not apply in the world as it is today. And that is why you do not think that uh, America should desire to, quote unquote, lead the world. Yes. First of all, I think we need a more realistic assessment of how much power uh, we have in the world. There have been some seismic events that have substantially weakened America's relative power. Uh, one of them was the global financial crisis. The pandemic is now another. Um, you know, when, the, when, when, when uh, Barack Obama came to power, when Bill Clinton was in power, China was far less powerful than it is today. So partly, I just think that we have to have a realistic assessment of the actual global balance of power that exists. But secondly, we have to try to see ourselves as the sum of our behavior overseas, rather than the sum of our kind of rose self-conception about what America stands for. And simply assuming that we have the right to lead, I think is really inappropriate given how much work the United States has to do simply to show that we are a kind of good member of global society. As I write in the New York Times piece, there are nine major global treaties that almost every other country has signed from banning landmines to cluster bombs to the global sale of arms to protecting oceans to prosecuting genocide and war crimes that the United States has not ratified. Before assuming that we should be at the head of the table, we might want to actually first try to clean up our own act. Okay, so Kimberly, we've got about 30 seconds before uh, the break. I just want to hear you uh, your quick response to what, what Peter's saying here. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. We are in a very different place. Uh, I recall being in Beijing in 2018 when Donald Trump was starting uh, his trade war, for example. And it was really amazing how the folks at think tanks over there, the Chinese officials that I spoke to, they weren't really blinking because they recognized even then uh, that their position economically in the world had changed uh, and they weren't going to back down to what they called Donald Trump's bullying. So uh, that seems to have panned out that trade war didn't work. And that's just one example of how things have changed. Well, we are talking uh, this hour about whether the United States can or even should 
seek to regain its place at the head of the global table, as President-elect Biden asserts that it should. We'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This hour, we are examining the assertion that has come from President-elect Joe Biden that the United States should reclaim its place at the head of the global table. We're asking whether the U.S. can do that and whether it even should. I'm joined today by Peter Beinart. He's contributing opinion writer to The New York Times, editor-at-large for Jewish Currents and professor of journalism at the City University of New York. Kimberly Atkins is also with us. She's senior opinion writer for the Boston Globe. She's in Washington. And Peter and Kimberly, I just want to do another little march through history just to remind us how deeply embedded in our political language, in in how the United States talks about itself, this notion of the, in fact, the almost inescapable duty of leadership, of global leadership that the United States has felt that it has had for 50 years. So, for example, here's 1987, President Ronald Reagan, final days of the Cold War, where he was in Berlin giving his famous tear down this wall speech next to the Brandenburg Gate. Uh, And he challenged the Soviet Union to accept uh, uh, the American or even Western way. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, If you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. President Ronald Reagan in 1987. And then thereafter, following the uh, end of the Cold War, President George H.W. Bush looked at the world through a unipolar lens with the United States as the sole superpower. Here he is in April 1991, defining what he called the New World Order. The New World Order does not mean surrendering our national sovereignty or forfeiting our interests. It really describes a responsibility imposed by our successes. It refers to new ways of working with other nations to deter aggression and to achieve stability. President George H.W. Bush in 1991. Now, this is a bipartisan effort. It has been for many decades. Here's Madeleine Albright, who received a lot of attention for calling America an indispensable, no, the indispensable nation. This is what she said when she was sworn in to be President Bill Clinton's Secretary of State. She called on the United States to embrace that role. We must not shy from the mantle of leadership nor hesitate to defend our interests, nor fail in our commitments, nor diverge from the principles that have defined, elevated, and sustained our nation for more than 200 years. 
So Kimberly Atkins, the reason why I wanted to go through that is that this is the world. This is the foreign policy milieu in which President-elect Joe Biden kind of politically grew up in, right? And then he, he led the foreign, the foreign Relations Committee on the Senate, and he was you know, quite instrumental in, in executing President Obama's foreign policy here. So this is, this is where, what he was marinated in. Do you think that, he, that um, are we seeing signs that he is thinking dramatically differently from, uh, from the from – from the, the uh, the 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 foreign policy approach that he spent decades being a part of. Well, we we certainly see so far that he is being serious in how he approaches this, and I think there are a couple things going on here. Aside from the the important point that Peter made, the difference between telling other countries what to do and leading by example uh, are big ones, and I think uh, Joe Biden understands now that he has to change the example that America is making by uh, setting forward a more professional, uh, a less cantankerous and adversarial foreign policy view than his predecessor coming in. So he's tapping people who he knows and trusts, folks like Anthony Blinken as Secretary of State and Jake Sullivan as his national security advisor. And I think it's putting forth what is a team, what has seemed to be a team of professionals, folks who know what they're doing, not coming out of the gate with a former uh, Exxon official, for example, um, to say to the world, we are going to be serious in how we engage with you. We are not going to uh, smash international uh, uh, organizations like or try to like NATO or the UN. We're not going to come across as bullies to the world and seeking only to protect American interests. We are at the very least going to uh, come at this with a more serious approach, a more serious style. Uh, and so I think that in itself would be a major change from the Trump administration. Um, and, and that's one of the first steps that we've seen so far. We have to wait to see substantively mm-hmm. uh, what Joe Biden proposes. Yeah, absolutely. And Peter, I'm looking here at, at what you wrote in The Times, though, and you point out that Biden's assertion about this head of the table thing comes from what you call two justifications. One is like the inertia of history, that 70 years that we've kind of been we listen to in the form of those presidential clips, 70 years of American leadership. And then you also point out that Biden talks about um, sort of a, a moral justification for American leadership. But given what you'd, you'd said earlier, do you see the president-elect as having recognized that maybe the, the world has the world has changed so much that those two justifications simply don't no longer apply in the eyes of the international community? What I worry about is that America's violations of international law have become so taken for granted that they're barely even noticed anymore in American political discourse. So while it's true that Joe Biden kind of wants to send a different message, that even if you just look at some of the things that have happened over the last few weeks, you see how um, you see that, in fact, I think he may not be willing to actually challenge the violations of international law that other countries notice, but that America has just now started to take for granted. So, for instance, the United the Israel, it appears, assassinated an Iranian nuclear scientist um, uh, recently. So it, it then it killed a, 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 a scientist of another country's government. And we imagine how 
we would feel if uh, Iran or some other government ass assassinated some someone who worked at the Department of Energy on their way to work in Arlington, Virginia. Um, Joe Biden has made no, that's a clear and blatant violation of international law and very dangerous. Um, uh, the Biden, Biden and his people have, have, have not criticized it, even though it appears very likely that the United States had some foreknowledge of that. The, the Trump administration has also now basically decided that it's willing to accept Morocco's control. It's going to accept Morocco's control over Western Sahara. Another clear violation of international law. Morocco invaded Western Sahara. The people of Western Sahara have been struggling for self-determination and, uh, and basic rights. And the United and Trump just disregarded that as a gift to Israel as in order to facilitate Morocco's peace agreement with Israel. And Biden hasn't criticized Trump's administration decision for that. So again, I fear that basically he will accept a virtual consensus that America has the right to do things that we would be outraged if other countries do. Mm. Well, let's listen to a moment to President-elect Biden's nominee to be the ne next Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken. And as Blinken introduced himself last month, he said the United States' proper place in the world isn't an either-or, but a sort of both-and. And here's what Blinken said. We have to proceed with equal measures of humility and confidence. Humility because, as the president-elect said, we can't solve all of the world's problems alone. We need to be working with other countries. We need their cooperation. But also confidence because America, at its best, still has a greater ability than any other country on earth to bring others together to meet the challenges of our time. Well, joining us now is Sean Breslin, professor of politics and international studies at the University of Warwick and is considered one of the UK's top experts on China. And for several years, he led the EU's Green Project, which stands for Global Reordering, Evolution Through European Networks, uh, a group that studied the evolving global order and the United States' role in it. Sean Breslin, welcome to you. Thank you. Are you convinced by Tony Blinken's call for the United States to proceed with equal measures of humility and confidence? Um, certainly the, uh, the humility side of things. Um, after Iraq and what happened in the Middle East and North Africa, I think there was a tendency in large parts of the world, large parts of Europe, to associate American leadership with that sort of uh, global policeman sort of role. And and I think that led to serious question marks um, about the nature of that, that leadership. But in recent years, um, the nature of global challenges to, shall we call it the liberal global order, have become more clear. Uh, and I think our thinking in this part of the world anyway is that uh, partnership with the United States is an essential component in dealing with those challenges. But that's not the same thing as the US maybe taking leadership in all dimensions of the, the of this challenge. Right. So so oftentimes look let's let's just be honest about this politicians say things to the domestic audience that they may not say uh, on the international stage or behind diplomatic closed doors. That's pretty common. But I did want to, to know what you thought about the fact that uh, you know in that little bite Blinken wrapped in that 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 humility with still the assertion still quote, that America at its best still has a greater ability than any other country on earth to bring others together to meet the challenges of our time. Do, do you buy that, yes. Sean? Well, 
um, within Europe, um, there's a, a tendency to think of the European Union as being a different type of uh, great power than previous great powers, uh, a normative power you often hear Europeans talk about um, ourselves. And despite what's happened with Brexit, I'm still considering myself a European here. Uh, and I, I think it, it does create a little bit of a, a, a bristling response in some places to hear to hear that sort of idea of America dominating, uh, rather than trying to form partnerships with people, and um, it, it doesn't—you don't always have to lead from the front. There was a, a lot of talk in the in the eighties of Japan leading from behind, sort of letting other countries uh, push with agendas that it wanted being promoted on the global scale, because Japan was still considered perhaps not always to be the uh, uh, most trustworthy partner. By, uh, by many in East Asia. So I think for, for practical reasons, actually, let alone anything else, sometimes leading from behind and letting other people uh, uh, move ahead with agendas that um, the US agrees with wouldn't be a bad idea. Mm. Well, actually, Kimberly, let me turn back to you there, because that phrase leading from behind, um, uh, if memory serves, President Obama actually might have said something similar uh, about U.S. foreign policy and got roundly uh, criticized for it here in the United States. So do you think that even just the notion of of uh, leading from behind has any traction uh, in Washington? Well, I, I think you're right. I think the, the audience, when you're speaking about foreign policy to Americans and when you're speaking more broadly, um, are two different things. And I think you know, the, the President Trump's America First is a great example of that. That was really popular among his supporters here. This idea that we should not be the policemen of the world. We, sh- we certainly should not be the benefactors of the world. We should take care uh, of American First was, was a, a populist message, even if it was serving to uh, reduce our space and reduce our, our leadership uh, uh, and re- our reputation, frankly, among other countries. So you always have to balance that. But at the same time, I think the message can be made that, uh, again, leading by example, uh, and we can't expect for the rest of the world to take their cues from us or or even partner with us if we can't demonstrate ourselves to be a nation that is worthy of that. And that will start with doing things like getting the pandemic under control, which is going to be the first uh, thing on uh, President-elect Biden's agenda. We do things like re- restoring faith in democracy itself, which Donald Trump has served uh, to undermine. And it'll be policies here at home can be uh, strong messages to the world, fixing our infrastructure in a way that we can try to keep up with uh, countries like China that is expanding both their physical and their uh, uh, electronic infrastructure in a way that is really beating us or or, uh, just having a national security and intelligence committees that work in a bipartisan fashion again. That used to go with without saying, uh, but we've seen that fright in recent years. So there's a lot to be done to convince Americans and to show Americans of the need for America to be able to call the respect, to draw the respect from other countries uh, that they once did. Kimberly, uh, a lot. That's basically everything that you just that you just outlined. Uh, Peter, your thoughts about that? Um, Yes, it's certainly true that the United States has an enormous amount of work to do at home um, in order to restore its sense to, to, to rebuild some of its power um, and, and also to rebuild some of its reputation. I mean, if, if you, it's interesting if you go back and look at some of the famous documents from the early Cold War, George Kennan's famous long telegram. Basically, what he says about America's competition with the Soviet Union is that we don't need to panic um, if we can kind of hold the line against Soviet power in a few key areas. 
and we can work on improving our domestic society and meeting internal challenges, our social, our political system will be stronger than the Soviet Union's, and ultimately we can kind of wait them out. Um, and um, he turned out to be to be right about that, that, that the Soviet economic system really stagnated. Um, it lost political legitimacy because of its, of its, of its repression. But I think it's, 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 it's going to be a much bigger challenge to do that today. China, although uh, certainly a, a very ruthless dictatorship, is much, much more economically dynamic than the Soviet Union was. So although it may not have a lot of soft power because of its domestic political system, it is a model of how to take a poor country and bring huge numbers of people out of poverty. Mm. Meanwhile, the United States is facing enormous, enormous problems in the basic, in our welfare state, in our political system. And I fear that given, even though Donald Trump is leaving, Trumpism with its basic disregard for liberal democratic norms and its kind of essentially white supremacist vision is going to be with us in the Republican yeah. Party. So it's going to be a lot of work to try to rebuild that. So Sean Breslin, let me turn back to you uh, quickly on this. We've got about a minute and a half before our next break because what Peter just said, I, I, I have heard repeatedly over and over again from from close observers um, of U.S. foreign policy, and that is, you know, the, the, that Trumpism, regardless of what happens in the next four years, because it is a, now a truism of a cert, of uh, parts of how the U.S. thinks about itself and the world that. International leaders kind of may look at this at the next four years as just a temporary pause. They don't know what's going to happen after that. Peter actually had also said earlier that perhaps the U.S. can no longer be trusted, trusted to make the rules. And I'm wondering what, what you think about that. Does the international community trust the United States? Well, in the short term, I think actually the uh, the election creates big possibilities because there's a, a, a widespread feeling, I think, that, you know, we're, we're not where we were in the past. But I, but I think this is right. There is a longer term uh, concern about, um, yeah, the, whether things will tip back again in the future, whether this is just an aberration. And I think there's a stronger resolve in a lot of countries to develop, if you like, their, their own localised in, indigenous policies and strategies rather than just waiting on the, the US to lead. It, it, it is a situation where I think there is a honeymoon possibility over the next sort of year or so. And I think the uh, the environment COP26 in Glasgow next year is going to be a big early test of that. But there are question yeah. marks over the long term. That's true. Well, Sean Breslin, Kimberly Atkins and Peter Beinart, hang in here for just a minute. When we come back from the other side of the break... We're going to talk about China, and we're, we're going to talk about what you all think America's approach to the world ought to be. We'll be back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts.
This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On Monday, we're going to be talking about how the pandemic has changed science. Now, first of all, and I just cannot say this enough, the creation of vaccines in such a short period of time is a triumph of science. But researchers around the world, and especially here in the United States, completely pivoted to focus on COVID in order to to achieve that triumph. What then were they not doing? What science was not being done uh, while the global scientific community focused on beating back COVID? So researchers and scientists, we want to hear from you for Monday's show uh, about how your research has been affected by COVID-19, um, about changes that have happened in your lab, about research that you're not doing, about the potential downsides of that, and whether you think you can catch up. Call us with at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. That is for Monday's show. Today, we are talking about President-elect Joe Biden's assertion that the United States is ready to reclaim its spot at the head of the global table and whether or not that's even possible or a worthy goal for the U.S. And I'm joined today by Sean Breslin, Kimberly Atkins, and Peter Beinart. And Sean, I want to spend some time talking with all of you about China, China, China. Because in the United States, uh, sort of withdrawal from its customary position in global leadership, its its withdrawal from international agreements, etc., all that we've been discussing, um, other things have been happening. <laughs> so how would you describe um, sort of China's rise uh, and its impact in the in the last couple of years? Um, astonishing <laughs> is, the, yeah. is, the, is the simple word. I first went to China in 1984 uh, as a student, and to think of it actually as being the same country that uh, we're talking about today is actually quite difficult. And I, I have to compartmentalise it in my, in my head. But but in some respects, I think one of the important things that's happened for the US in terms of China and its rise and the response to that is there has been a shift in thinking in Europe or important parts of Europe in the last. The last few years, up until about the sort of mid 2010s, I think um, China was primarily seen as an opportunity by many European governments, and it, the, the, there were some challenges, but but it wasn't spoken about uh, in the same way as I think the challenge was in the US. And over the last few years, that thinking has changed, and now there's a, a much more of a focus on the potential problems rather than just the potential opportunities that China's rise might present to um, to European countries. And so this, I think, creates something of a closer overall starting point for thinking about relations with China than, than might have been the case mm. in, the, in the mid-2010s. But, but it, it, I can't help thinking that in some ways when we think about China, we're, we're a little bit constrained by thinking about previous eras of polarity yeah. and power competition. I mean, if you think in the Cold War, if you were on one side of the bipolar divide, you were, you were stuck um, with your allies. You know, you you came together, you stayed together, you stuck together, and by definition, you were uh, repelled by the by the other side. But But it's not like that today because you can have very large concerns about Chinese, let's say, security challenges or normative challenges to the liberal nature of the global order, but still have very, very close relations with China economically. And I just just 
I mean, very briefly, the EU brought out a strategy paper in 2019 where it called China simultaneously a cooperation partner, a negotiating partner, an economic competitor and a systemic rival promoting alternative models of governance at the same time. And this makes it much more difficult to deal with than a a holistic across-the-board friend or a holistic across-the-board enemy. Mm. Okay, so so Peter, uh, at the same time, uh, China is also and has also been ex- expanding its spheres of influence in multiple uh, dimensions around the world. I mean, the Belt and Road Project, for example. Um, I know from from Sean's research here, I'm learning that, uh, for example, uh, China now has formed sort of a, a group called the what the Seventeen and One Group. Uh, Sean, it's, well, it was originally the Sixteen Plus One, which was a, for, okay. uh, a forum for talking to uh, countries in the uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and Greece was added to it to become Seventeen Plus One. Right. So, so, and, and so, so this is a group with former. Uh, sort of Eastern Bloc countries plus That's plus right, yeah. Greece, as you said. So, Peter, I mean, I guess what I'm what I'm getting to here is that the you know even just the analogy of the head of the table is so utterly wrong because there is no that that is a unipolar view uh, of of the current state of the world, which just doesn't exist. There is no one head of the table. So, so is it is it troubling to you that that's the that's one of the analogies that that Biden is sort of projecting his foreign policy view through. Yes, and I think that what worries me is that um, w- there's now this notion that Biden wants to kind of rally the democratic world against China, um, and and I, I have some concerns about this. First of all, I think that um, the the two greatest threats that China poses to the United States, in my view, are its contribution to climate change and its contribution to global pandemics. We've now lost 300,000 people as a result of of this pandemic, and there could be future pandemics. What is significant about both of these threats that China poses to the United States, threats one and two, in my view, is that they can both only be solved by cooperation, not by confrontation. And I think that there's obviously in U.S. policy has to be a balance between cooperation and 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 competition. Um, but I think that if you listen to the way that mainstream foreign policy discourse in the United States has shifted um, in recent years, not just in the Republican Party, but even in the Democratic Party, you don't see the recognition that the most central threats we face in China have to be dealt with through cooperation with China. Um, And I also think there's become a reflexive view that every time China expands its influence around the world, this is a terrible thing and the United States needs to try to stop it. You mentioned the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road, you know, has its problems. Sometimes countries get, you know, caught up in Chinese debt. But countries want this Chinese funding because they need economic development and they weren't getting it often in the way they wanted from the U.S. and its affiliated institutions. And even if the United States tried to sabotage the Belt and Road, we couldn't. So how about instead of trying to stop it, we try to work with the Chinese to make it more environmentally sensitive, to make it more green, to try to help so that they don't build so many coal-fired power. Plants. I worry that a new Cold War mentality is seizing both uh-huh. parties, and I think it's going to do a lot of damage. Well, so Kimberly, talk about that. I mean, are you seeing that sort of reflexive manichaeism that that uh, that Peter's talking about regarding China? I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, 
China has emerged in a way as this giant boogeyman uh, for the United States. And, and as pointed out, there are a lot of problems uh, with uh, with China from everything from its human rights violations uh, to its uh, issues with how it handles intellectual property and, and the issues that Peter brought out, the pandemic uh, and climate change. But at the same time, I think both of those top two issues are opportunities for the Biden administration to try to work with China. And this has a ripple effect in other ways, of course. There are other time, there, there are other ways that China is an important player. For example, with, uh, with dealing with North Korea, uh, President Trump's approach to befriend Kim Jong-un uh, has largely left North Korea just as great or if not a greater threat than it was before the Trump administration because now Kim Jong-un has received this uh, imprimatur uh, of being uh, at the table with the United States, which is exactly what it seeks. Mm. So the only way to try to control, uh, push North Korea to to stop its nuclear program is with the cooperation of China. You can't get that cooperation if you are not extending uh, to work with them in other ways. So it's complicated uh, but that's the, that's the new reality that the incoming Biden administration will have to face. Yeah. So as we head towards the end of the, the hour here, let's put aside that head of the table analogy. Let's just put it aside. If anything, that's kind of more of a round table now rather than the head of a table. And, and, and I want to talk about so then uh, uh, approaches that would work. It, given what the world is and what the United States has allowed itself to become uh, in the past many years. And Peter, in your, in your piece in The Times, you point this out. You point out that this September, when the Chicago Council on Global Affairs asked Americans whether they preferred the United States to play a dominant or a shared leadership role, shared prevailed by almost three to one. And then you point something out, which I think is extraordinarily important. It's not ordinary Americans who believe the United States must, quote, sit at the head of the table, as Mr. Biden has said. It is foreign policy elites who often slander public opposition to American primacy as isolationism. So then in lieu of that, you talk about solidarity being the watchword that should be the watchword for the Biden administration. What, practically speaking, what does that look like on the global stage? It means saying that we have to follow the rules and not just be part of making them, that we have to recognize that we have the ability to not only do good in the world, but we have the ability to do enormous harm, that our post 9-11 wars, according to the Brown University study, have created 37 million refugees. That, that, you know, the reason I end that piece with Martin Luther King's speech opposing the Vietnam War is that what King was able to do was create a vision of American patriotism without the assumption of inherited American virtue. And that's what I think we need. He called America the greatest force for violence, purveyor of violence in the world. We need to recognize the harm that we have done and continue to do and and try to be a better, to show solidarity, not just by bringing people together, but by making sure that we don't contribute to misery around the world. And so then, Sean, does that sort of solidarity framework, that solidarity approach, how does that work with another idea that, that you've put forth, which is sort of putting aside the notion of absolute alliances, unquestioning alliances even, and, and opting for something more along the, the lines of partial alliances. What does that even mean? 
Well, I mean, look, and let's take an example from from China. I mean, China and India can share a position and form an alliance because of their shared dissatisfaction with the nature of power and global governance organisations. But they're on the totally opposite side of the uh, divide when it comes to preferences, forms of governance, and even end up fighting each other at times. So they're finding practical alliance, uh, issue-based alliances. And I think that uh, we've already spoken about that. In terms of the environment, China has to be a partner. In, in terms of p- pandemics, China has to be a partner. So rather than seeking once and for all blocks and alliances, I think it's incumbent on all countries to try and think on an issue-by-issue base and ask, in this specific issue, given this specific problem, who, which uh, constellation of countries do we need to work together for effective forms of governance? Um, I, you know, I think we have seen this uh, in, in the past. We are seeing it explicitly in the way that China tries to build, in its words, uh, partnerships rather than alliances. Um, and, I, and I think, going back to that discussion on the environment, we are beginning to, to, to see a recognition of the importance of this flexibility. So China, or whoever might be a partner on this issue area, and let's build a relationship with them. Uh, but on another issue area, we might find ourselves actually in competition with them. And, and one of the things that this suggests is to worry a little bit less about leadership and to focus a bit more on followership. You know, who is likely to follow us if this is our agenda and this is what we want to do and this is how we're going to go about getting it? Okay. Kimberly, I'm going to come to you here in just a second, but I, this is my chance to, to sort of sneak in a little bit more from what President-elect Biden said uh, when he introduced his national uh, security team recently. Uh, and he did, in a sense, seem to recognize that the world has indeed profoundly changed when he pointed out how, uh, how diverse and in his national security team is and how there are uh, some younger members on it that he said would bring fresh thinking. Experience and leadership, fresh thinking and perspective, and an unrelenting belief in the promise of America. I've long said that America leads not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. So, Kimberly, do we see, do you see in um, in the foreign policy and national security team that Biden is assembling around him sort of an, an openness to the ideas that, that Peter and Sean are, are putting on the table here? Well, I mean, they're, they're experienced and smart people. And I think they are well aware that uh, the way that the United States must lead or try to be a leader, be it by example or, or by pushing policy, uh, will be different than it was four or eight or 12 years ago. And that uh, that the, that those dynamic changes have to be taken into account. But I think overall, like the point that I said before, I think the just the style is an important factor as much as the substance. And I think this new team uh, reflects a completely different style uh, from President Trump's administration that will in itself automatically set it in a new direction. Where this team goes from there um, is, is the question. It depends on what, what policies they put forth. So, Peter, do you think that it's possible for sort of this uh, mind shift to happen? Because we must also recognize and and state clearly, the United States still is the largest economy in the world, still has the largest military in the world. There are, there it does have the momentum of the 70 years of history we've been talking about. I mean, there are forces at play that still position the U.S. for a potential leadership role. 
Yes, but my my concern is that the domestic pressures from the movements that we've seen over the last few years uh, that have changed the Democratic Party's views on domestic policy have not been felt on foreign policy. The foreign policy elite is far more insulated from public opinion than it is on domestic policy. And that's why we see a foreign policy agenda that has not been dramatically reshaped I would say, by um, by the pandemic, where you have the Biden administration essentially comfortable with the level of defense spending, military spending we have now, when the pandemic should have made it so clear Mm -hmm. that the military is that we are spending too much on the military and not nearly enough on protecting Americans and keeping them alive from the greater threats that we face, which are non-military. Well, Peter Beinart is contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, editor-at-large for Jewish Currents, and professor of journalism at the City University of New York. We have links to his writing at onpointradio.org. Peter, thank you so very much. My pleasure. And Kimberly Atkins, senior opinion writer for The Boston Globe, joining us from Washington. Kimberly, it is always great to have you. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. And Sean Breslin, professor of politics and international studies at the University of Warwick. Sean Breslin, thank you for joining us today. Uh, It's been great to take a break from Brexit. (laughs) Only for the moment. (laughs) I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. (laughs) 